0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Morris Ardwan, one of the hosts for the podcast Queer Voices of the South. Today, I'm talking to Mary Ann Cherry about her book, Morris Kite Humanist, Liberationist, Fantabulist A Story of Gay Rights and Gay Wrongs. The new paperback edition is out this, uh, in 2020 from Process Media. A little bit about Mary Ann Cherry. She befriended Morris Knight in the last decade of his life. She, with his permission, began writing his biography. Cherry is a Los Angeles-based writer whose wide-ranging work includes television and film producing, as well as creating and maintaining the historical archives for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Here's a little bit about the book from the book jacket. How did the gay movement, which began as a sedate group of intellectuals, become what is arguably the most dynamic civil rights crusade in America? How did a deviant and marginalized fraction of society evolve into powerful, effective, and respective leaders? Activist Morris Kite, a sometimes ignored leader of the post-Stonewall gay rights movement, self-aggrandizing and egotistical in a room full of egos, always found the camera and a way to give gay rights a seat at the table of social reform. His style of organizing and activism showed the power of the influencer decades, before social media brought millions together with a meme. His work in the 1950s as part of an underground network of gay safe houses that provided bail, health care, and legal advice was based on his early socialist beliefs. He turned his unique charisma and organizing skills to the 1960s anti-war movement before deciding to devote the rest of his life to the public fight for gay liberation. He fostered key relationships with fellow activists such as Harvey Milk, politicians, socialites, and gangsters. He had backroom deals with wealthy business owners and handshake agreements with power brokers. This led to a new quality of life for homosexuals, liberated homo youths, and eventually led to the first generation of never-closeted gays. Knight helped organize the first gay pride parade in the country in 1970. He founded groups that led seminal protests that resulted in the American Psychiatric Association removing homosexuality as a disease from his diagnostic manual, protecting civil rights for gay citizens in California, and reducing police violence against the gay community. And for every good thing he did, he took credit for more. He was a man who, with his many flaws, managed to alienate as many people as he brought together. His story brings to life his work as remembered by those who loved and loathed him. Welcome to the podcast, Marianne. It's nice to talk with you, Morris, about another Morris. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, tell us how you came uh, to write this book. This, is a, a, this was a, a big, big project as a writer, I can imagine. Tell us about it.
1: It, it did. It, the project grew. I allowed the um, research to sort of lead me. I did know Morris for the last 10 years of his life. And I knew him as a dynamic character. He he definitely was someone. I always sensed that there was a, a bigger story just below, just just under the um, under the hood, if you will. And he was. It was probably well. He died in in January of '03, so it was like the mid to the end of '02. And someone asked me if I would be interested in doing an oral history with him. And I knew Morris's health was was failing him. And I opted out um, because I knew Morris's ego to be what it was, that he would just take over and I would basically be his typist. And so I opted out and and then I went back to the person. I said, you know, maybe we can do a legitimate biography. Um, And so we presented that idea to Morris, who was in Cedar sinai at the time, and he was getting ready to be moved to hospice care. And he and I talked extensively on the phone about the project and he did give me his blessing. Uh, he told me about some files that he had sent back East uh, that he thought were lost. And um, so, but I did find them. I said, don't don't worry about that Morris. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to fill in that hole. And I really did welcome the challenge. I loved the whole thing. And also at that time, near the end of Morris's life, um, he was being maligned within the gay community a bit. And it was really due to class. There was a whole new structure coming into gay activism. I think a lot of this was as a result of AIDS. Um, It it became well-funded and um, high profile. And suddenly it was um, Hollywood elite to be a gay activist. When Morris was doing it, when he he and his uh, peers were starting out, It was anything but elite and it was also um, they had to beg for every dime so all of that the 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 double-edged sword that Mars presented in his personality but also his place in history and i was so afraid that he'd be uh, marginalized because he really did do he gave voice to to gay activism in a way that no one else had ever been able to Um, before him the homophile movement which which was part of Mattachine, which sprung out of the early, the communist party, um, they were very, in Morris's view, they were very sedate. And Morris, um, he loathed the word homophile. He thought it was marginalizing who they really were and adapting to the straight world, if you will. There was always a, a fear of assimilationism which a lot of gay people that, that what happened to the Mattachine was um, Hal Call came in and he wanted everybody to wear suits and he'd pretend that they were straight and make themselves um, in the world and then demand gay rights. And Morris did not believe that at all. He just said, no, you have to go in as gay and tell them what you want at the door, which is pretty much how he worked it out eventually. It took a couple of years. And so I was, I was, um, excited by the challenge on that, uh, the two, the, the, the dual challenge and he gave me his blessing and I just started. And the first place I went was to New Mexico.
0: Well, thank you. Um, there is a, a guest in our conversation, your bird, who is listening to us. I want the audience to know that that chirp on occasion is because yes. we have someone joining us. And we, we like that we hear that sound That's every now Mike. and again.
1: That 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 is Mike. And I'll tell you, he, he, he lost his queer partner just a few years ago. So we're just kind of keeping each other company now. He had Arnie Aww. with him for many years and they were a beautiful couple. They really were um my little gay oh. birds i love them dearly no <laughs> so it's just mike and me now here through
0: the pandemic well we're glad to have you both on the call um i, I want to talk to you about the um southern piece our our podcast is called queer voices of the south and there is a big chunk of southernness in this man's life um tell us about that talk about his his connections to the south in general uh, texas and specific, and uh, albuquerque
1: you know, I, I say in the book that Morris's um, perception of himself is always paramount. It's always going to be at the center because he kept it at the center. And when you meet Morris for the first time, there's not a trace of, of Southern in the way he speaks. He's very articulate. He can even be Edwardian in his speech. And yet sometimes he'll drop that. And that's this, the speech pattern. And there's no doubt that he is from dirt farm, you know, Southern roots and he could really let it rip. Um, and it was, it, he would use it for effect. So he, he always was aware. Now, again, this is his perception of himself as a young child. He was aware of the Jim Crow laws of the fight for feminism and, um, voter rights. Now he was, he was born in 1919. So he wasn't even 10 years old when he was talking about these issues, or he was saying, or he said that he was aware of these issues and his, um, mother's family. She's, she is like, as you said earlier, he, she, she is right out of a Tennessee Williams play. Um, his, his mother's fam, both, both sides of his, both, both sides of his family, um, go back to the Civil War, fight, fighting for the South, most of them, not, not 100%. Uh, but his mother's family was all Southern, and they were very, very racist, and they would say things to Morris that just, you know, with the hairs on the back of his neck would go up. So he pretty much knew which side of the ideological road he was going to travel from a very early time. And he was also greatly influenced. He was a great reader. He he went through the small town library. He went through the school library, and he was able to get a library, a lending library in Chicago, to start sending him books. And that's where he was um, introduced to the world of humanism, Gandhi, and all the pacifism that he then took on to be his own um, religion, if you will. He he was not a religious man per se, but that but that shaped him that shaped his ideology as well so that the southern roots that it, it it fostered a revolutionary in him and not a a belligerent revolutionary he was never going to knock down anyone's door but he sure would hang on it long enough before they'd open them, before, before they'd open the door for him just out of annoyance and he he, foster, he he cultured this way of him, of himself moving throughout the world and creating change along the way, at least creating awareness of those around him. And I think the Southern part, um, people don't want to understand, especially today, uh, you know, we're witnessing this cancer, cancel culture, is a danger that you're going to lose a lot of important history in that. And people may be hesitant to accept that really one of the great uh, civil rights revolutionaries of the 20th century came out of Southern roots. It came, you know, it spawned from um, um, the South. And it's very important that we can accept that there was this civil war that happened and yet we're all, we come out of it and we are all still Americans and we have to continue to evolve or we will, we will. If we continue to cancel our history, we will be destined to repeat it.
0: I'm afraid. Um, he, he, it's in his DNA, the southern that southern DNA about him, having seen and especially witnessed with his mother's treatment of him, um, that that uh, he saw it all around him, and at a very early age, he said uh, as young as ten, um, and so, and uh, it, 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 like I said, informed him about how he saw the world and what what he could do with it. Um, He ultimately, um, he, at first, um, and and then right when he leaves, he goes, he serves in the military a bit and he comes back, um, but he goes down to Albuquerque, which is not the South, but it's, it's Southwest. (laughs) So, um, but, but he, he had a whole life there that was not as a gay activist. Um, He had, he had a double life. Tell us about that double life. Yes. He had a double life, which was
1: really, it's a, it's an unfortunate necessity of that time in life. If if a man or woman was ambitious, if they had um, some sense, if they had um, if they were smart, really, they they got into a marriage. They 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 feigned a legitimate heterosexual life. And sadly it I mean, I think we, we just we read so many stories about this, how it, it the psychological Stress of it just does impact both to all people that are involved. The other, the, the as I was writing that, as I was going through that whole part of uh, Morris's history, I realized that there there are unsung um, victims of the closet. We always, when, when we talk about a person living in the closet, we talk about the person in the closet. We're not talking about the people who love the person in the closet, who have been impacted by that person in the closet. There's all these other victims. And in Morris's case, it, it was a lovely young wife who married him before she even knew what, what homosexual was. Um, she had no clue what was going on with her husband, who was spending all nights out. And he'd come home beat up, and which was kind of the the uh, routine, I guess, and um, and they had two children. And ultimately, what happened was he had to leave that life. He had to um, leave Albuquerque. It was it, there. There was a scandal. Um, there were a couple of scandals that happened in the mid fifties in Albuquerque, and Morris's was kind of overshadowed by one of the professors at the university there. Um, and his, his wife came from a very uh, connected and wealthy family, which again, that, that fit Morris's bigger picture for Morris Kite. Uh, he was being groomed for a shot to run for governor of New Mexico at one point. So he had bigger ambitions, but his homosexual nightlife, um, came out in the daylight and he wasn't ready to leave right away, but eventually he, he got the message. He was he's very stubborn. Morris is a is a stubborn individual. Sometimes for in on the side of right, and sometimes just on the side of kite. I say,
0: right. The, the, his wife, um, the children, um, his mother. Um, all had parts in, in, I think, propelling him in many ways, even though he may have um, tr- treated especially his girls. Um, he, he, w- he wasn't as fully present for them as he might have been. Um, and um, ultimately, he, he uh, does divorce. And but he but not before he ha, he and his wife established themselves as really really well connected throughout the region, in the arts in other areas um, where they were contributing they were part of the um, the cream of the crop. They were they were
1: this I mean when, the first time I went to Albuquerque to research Morris now I I, I love New Mexico um, just on a personal level. And when I went to Albuquerque, I could feel there were bits of Morris Kite there. He, they were definitely involved in the shaping, the new art movement that was happening there. He brought a Picasso show. Um, he also, the Dublin players would come. They had a an art house and they had a playhouse. And then Morris bought another building and he called it, they called it the Kite Family Museum, which was really all about Morris Kite. But it was it, he was started collecting... Uh, crafts, uh, uh, um, you know, just like local crafts that, that were done by the natives, Native Americans. And they were not a big deal at the time. Nobody saw the value in them, but of course today they would, you know, this, this work is so valuable. Um, and so because of his wife's connect, family connections, Morris was able to walk through a lot of doors as a heterosexual man. And he knew that he wouldn't be able to do that as a homosexual man. Now his mother, who came, who never came to Albuquerque until his wedding, and she was quite a quite a tale. I mean, if um, I suppose you know uh, somebody like Kathy Bates in Misery comes to mind. She just a little. She she was more than just a little off uh, balance, and she knew from a very young age that Morris was different, and she she threatened to blackmail. She blackmailed him. For years and years, she'd say, she'd say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to out you if you don't do what I want. So she moved to Albuquerque and his wife told me um, that if she had met his mother before the wedding, she never would have married him. And I do believe her (laughs) because Bessie was a handful. And so she stayed in Albuquerque and she created such such havoc for that for this young family. As she was, as, um, his wife was having her children and raising them, and um, so she was a humiliation. And if it wasn't for her, he probably would have been able to pull this off. But she kept calling so much negative energy to herself, and therefore Morris, and then the whole family. And it seemed that 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 she was going to be the the um, fly in his ointment, the 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 um, the sword in his side. And he would never abandon her, though he was very loyal to her. Even when he left Albuquerque and moved to Los Angeles, he still helped her. And it and at that point, he didn't care what she told to whom. You know, she could. You know, he was already fully
0: out. He was transitioning um, so to the second, yeah, second life.
1: Yes, yes. So he he went on to a new chapter. He came to Los Angeles with really nothing, and he started he started a whole new life. And he had decided that he didn't need the house and the bi- and the, all the um, the big things he did eventually um, reclaim an art collection that was of some value of some note, certainly in, um, in political circles. Um, he lived I, I don't want to say an aesthetic life, but he was definitely close to that. He, he kept himself close to the edge so that he could really risk everything and not lose much
0: he was very shrewd um i i loved reading about that piece um i i um, at, when i picked up the book and i saw about um the lgbt movement in its title i didn't expect so much about him and his backstory and it really does help inform who he was for readers like me um it puts a lot into context especially as a, a gay person a gay southern person myself um and I identify with a lot of that going on when I was growing up, and I became a young adult. I started i i recognize our antenna are up as as young young people. Um, the other people who had had double lives in my hometown in Louisiana. Um, and it, and it and at first it's a little source of gossip, and then you know these people are very well placed. Um, they are respected. Um, he managed to, to, to really set a, a tone for the capacity for influence from anybody if you know how to um negotiate and he that was one of his strengths um I, I want us to move into the actual the lgbt movement that he was so um important to uh and because that's a that's the again the, the crux of your book is about so many parts that were moving at the time but just burgeoning and he had his hand in it seemed everything tell us yeah. about the beginning of that, yeah. he moved to California, and that's when that kind of started taking off,
1: right? He, there, as you said, there were a lot of moving parts in the um, gay movement, and it, it as uh, someone said, it's just unimaginable to try to uh, um, to try to bring together, organize people to come together in a political movement based on their sexuality. It just it, it just seemed insane. It couldn't happen. And there were a lot of different um, ideas of what gay liberation was going to look like. And Morris, when he first came to Los Angeles and, I, I, and he hooked up with Harry Hay and, his, and Harry's contemporaries they were sitting in, um, clo- they were sitting in rooms with the blinds drawn and the doors locked, and they were very seriously having discussions about gay marriage. Well, Morris just thought this was the most ridiculous thing because you can't they, they couldn't walk down the streets holding hands. How are they gonna get married at that point? So he foresaw there was a long road ahead before you get to gay marriage. And really, honestly at that point Morris just thought that gay people could do better than marriage, can do better than than, than the institution of marriage. He didn't know if it was gonna be civil unions, but he just um, he just saw that, that a, an effective homosexual movement could positively impact everyone's life. It didn't really quite quite work out that way because the assimilationists kind of came in and and said, "No, we want to we want to live in a heterosexual world. We want to be able to operate in that kind of a world and be married." And okay, fine, that's 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 the route that was taken ultimately. But on the road there, there was. Um, If you, Morris knew, he talked to people who had jobs in hiring, or if they had jobs in public health, he was able to organize. First thing he did was he had to figure out what the needs were of this underground community that were afraid to live above ground. They were just, there was just so much fear. And he also saw that one arrest, one, one entrapment will ruin a life. So Morris set out in the late fifties to start empowering individuals. He put his phone numbers on walls in gay bars on the, in the bathroom. He got his phone number in the jail. Um, if you need help, if you're, if you're gay and scared, if you need help counseling, call me. And he had an underground bail fund going, um, which was pretty, pretty substantial amount. And somebody would call him in the middle of the night and say, I found your number here. I just got arrested. And he'd get them out. And then he'd he'd find them a place to stay. And then he'd help them get a job. And so one individual was empowered. And then that individual, in Morris's expectation, would then help someone else. And on it would go. And eventually, by the mid to late 60s, there was a gay community forming. There was a very healthy, strong gay community. And they were living life above ground in their, on their own terms. Now, now, they weren't all able to get, you know, uh, white-collar jobs living like that. There was still, there was still a lot of turns in the road to happen, um, but Morris strategized this, and at the same time that he was doing that, he his above-ground activism was in the anti-war effort, and he cultivated a lot of, um, a lot of good connections in that uh, not everyone in that anti-war effort was all uh, was immediately willing to come aboard for the um, gay rights movement in 60, in 1969. It was after Stonewall happened. A- after Stonewall, everything changed, and Morris saw that this was the t- the time was ripe. It's going to happen now or never, and he jumped on it. And he again he brought together individuals, and they started the Gay Liberation Front, which in turn then. Was able to get the Gay Survival Community uh, Committee going, which again helped with bail and health services. Um, there was so many. Oh, housing—that was a big issue. If you were too gay, if you were too overtly gay, somebody wouldn't um, rent to you. And not only could you not get a job, but you couldn't even find a place to live. So he and then and then with the Gay Liberation Front, that was just that that was. That was the best. That was that. That was like one big party of activism, and he he said a zap a day. The the um, the activists. The term that they used at that time was zap, z a p, and that was just a little demonstration. And really, it might be as simple as walking down the street holding hands, and that would slowly over time, it's going to inculcate society to hey, there's gay people amongst us, and they're not to be frightened.
0: No longer in the, um, in the background, in the shadows. Um, I I love it. You, you, you cite a quote about the riots. Um, The police called uh, uh, into the uh, uh, precinct the the night of the riot and, and um, was telling his colleague that there was, there was a group of people protesting and the, uh, the colleagues said, which group? The Chicanos, the Asians, the African-Americans, the anti-war What is it? And so he told his colleague, Oh, uh, no, it's the fags. The officer didn't believe him. So um, he said, Why would they do that? That he was so, everyone was so accustomed to the gays being the ones who would not raise any kind of fuss. um, Things were changing. So uh, you also quote Allen Ginsberg after the riots, who said, Homosexuals don't have that hurt look anymore. I love that quote. Uh, That was, and that really captures, the fact that okay, it's time we need to stop. We need to stop hiding. Yes,
1: yes. See the the the, uh, in the um, it, you expect to see black people in a in a black rights march. You expect to see women in a you know in a feminist march, but as far as like this straight um, world goes, gay people could just stay in the closet. They could just stay underground. You didn't have to tell us you're gay. And they were very happy with that. If you want to be gay on the weekends in the dark, that's fine. That's your thing. But you don't have to come out with it. But Morris Kite and his ilk, as they were called, the ilk, um, they said, no, we don't want to live underground. We want to live out and proud. And that was a whole new generation. And I do say this in the book that when the heroes of the 20th century are written about, I do hope that everyone who marched in that first gay pride parade down Hollywood Boulevard is remembered. They were heroes. These people weren't out to their families, they weren't out to their employers, and they marched down the streets holding signs, saying things like gay and proud, Um, you know, we are not to be feared. And slowly, the straight world got the message that like oh we got a whole new fraction of society contributing positively contributing to to our world it was a very powerful moment
0: there was so much there's so much that morris kite um had touched um and I, i again i think i mentioned earlier that he he seemed to have been um very very adept at knowing the table and how to get a seat at the table and, and all these various factions and parts. You mentioned other other movements, uh, the anti-war movement was being one of them, but um, he knew how to build coalitions with other outside groups because he knew that he couldn't do it alone, that the, the movement couldn't be a movement without support from others outside Correct.
1: of it. Correct. He, the, um, especially Los Angeles police department, they were so hostile towards uh, gay people. And pretty much the, the government, the whole city council, were just very indifferent to the indignities happening to gay people. And in, I think it was 72, maybe, the first um, black mayor became, uh, the first black mayor of all, in all of America, um, uh, Mayor Bradley, was, uh, was elected. Morris jumped on that. He immediately went. And these people knew of Mars, and they would always take his phone call. Sometimes he would be so bold as to just show up at their office and say, I just need a few minutes with the mayor. That's all I need. He'd get in. He'd get in. He just had his way. And so he 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 got Mayor Tom Bradley aligned with the gay movement. Not necessarily because um he was a liberal mayor, but because he knew that civil rights was was for everyone. Um and, and Mayor Bradley was very uh, I, he he was just very supportive of Morris's efforts and it helped to foster in a new generation of the police department um, city council and it, it really did was the beginning of much bigger changes which could not have happened had they stayed in those rooms with the blinds drawn and the doors locked and them whispering about gay marriage
0: exactly nothing was exactly happen that way right um and um and again our, our culture our, our generations that have followed don't know how how powerful that is that that used to be the world that we were subjected to that we had to live in if we wanted to survive in 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 all of the areas that and most of the areas except in those rooms with the with the blinds drawn um, so, um, I, I, I there, there's so much in this book. We don't, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about as much as we would like to, um, and each of these podcasts, but you told us earlier on, um, in this conversation that you got to do this book cause you became uh, friends with Mr. Knight and the last part of his life. Um, and I find that really, really powerful as well. You were not, you're not just a, a an historian. You got to the source, while he was still on earth. Um, and, um, I, 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 I had to congratulate you, your own history for having done that is so powerful. It's a piece that uh, I think will be written about later on. Um, the, the, but you were there in, in the point where he was at a place where he could look back. Did he tell you things about what he felt about uh, how his life had been, about was he satisfied? Um, where things would go? Was what did what did you learn beyond the, um, the the parts of the history that you were trying to get down? But how was he in those last those last couple of years of his life?
1: Well, um, I'm glad you asked about that because Morris and I would have lunch, you know, you know, infrequently. And he was always such a, you know. Sometimes he would invite me to events. You know, why don't you meet us up here for, you know, the the Human Relations Commission? They were always lovely events and interesting. But when he and I sat one on one over lunch or we talk on the phone, um, he was always very candid about his his place and where he saw himself, his place in history. Now. I want to rewind a little bit and go back to Albuquerque because he was in Albuquerque in, um, it was a great program. It was a government program. And instead of just joining the military, he got into the career services training program, which was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a big hero of Morris's by the way. And through that, he learned, um, uh, administration. He learned how to human Relations in relationship to administration. So he learned all of his his most important um, tactics and skills came right from the career services training program. Um, and it, he, he was um, he was assigned to the Pueblo Indians. So he applied all of that learning into the gay rights movement, into a movement. Um, when he came to Los Angeles, he saw himself when he was looking back over his life he was mostly grateful he was grateful but he never really felt that he had received enough gratitude and it was interesting because he was at he was in cedar sinai and the um the person who was in charge of the one archives the um gay and lesbian um archives at usc they really wanted Morris's collection. They wanted his art collection and they wanted his files. And it was val- they, they understood the value of it. And my friend Stuart Timmons was the executive um, the director of the archive at the time. And he went to visit Morris to try to get him to sign a deed, which Morris ultimately did sign the deed. But in that conversation, uh, Stuart told me that at one point, Morris just stopped talking for a moment. And he looked at Stewart in all seriousness. And he said, do you like me? Like, do you you really like me? And I know Stewart wasn't the biggest Morris kite fan, but he told me that in that moment, he genuinely did like Morris because he could see Morris's vulnerability being buoyed up by this strength that was just never going to quit. And he said, yes, actually I do Morris. And I, and I appreciate your place in history. That's all Morris needed to hear. He needed to know that he had a place in history. And I was worried that he was gonna be marginalized because he, he really did help a whole generation to, to regain agency
0: of their own lives. Yeah, and see that, um, and really that, that point we talked about earlier, that they could not be quiet. They had to stick their necks out. We all have to do something. A piece not nearly necessarily in the way that he did as 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 forceful and and brash and sometimes uh he he would he would scare people off to the cause um but um that everyone has to say i'm here i'm queer (laughs) you know i have to be a part of this if you sit back and let everyone else do it it, it's we're not going to nearly move as fast we have still have a long ways to go um, obviously, when there are organizations still cropping up trying to undo some of the some of the gains that we have made, um, I, I I was talking about gay marriage to someone recently and how it and you know I think I was fifty before, uh, maybe uh, before that happened in my life and I thought oh I never had marriage as part of my emotional vocabulary. Um, it's very and it struck me that this is we actually can talk about it now and it's actually not just a game. It's not, this is really a serious thing for us. And yes, I do understand the part that giving up too much of who we are so that we can fit into that other world. I, I agree with that. We don't need to give up who we are, but we definitely deserve and should, be, uh, should have the uh, equality that, um, that marriage provided, which at one point I read that there were 1,100 something laws that we were not um, uh, having access to because we couldn't be married. Um, the could, big, right. the biggest ones. Yes. The biggest ones being the obvious, the financial ones, where if your, your partner died, um, that partner wasn't necessarily um, uh, able to, to, to benefit from any of the um, savings you had or any of the stuff, unless you had a, an express will. And even so families often would contest those things. So marriage helped uh, make um, our rights um, understandable, but also um, firm that, you know, we have something not behind us. So I, I think that uh, it weren't, if were not for people like him, um, I know there were a lot of people involved in the movement, but um, doing his work, it wasn't quiet and noble behind the scenes. He was brash. He was mm-hmm. out there. He wasn't going to do it quietly and, oh, and good for him.
1: Yes, yeah. I want to I want to add something here because he, he does he does have his detractors out there. But what Morris did, because he was so brash and he was he could be in your face. He did force other people to compete with compete with him on that level. So the people who, I, I mean, there's, there's still a few out there that, that will be detractors of the Morris Kite because they're trying to get more attention for themselves. And they are exactly what Morris was. They are exactly w- what they're complaining about in Morris. Rather than just appreciating the uniqueness of Morris, they then want to try to become him and do him better. Um, you can try. You can try to better Morris Kite all you <laughs> like. I don't think you will. I don't think it's going right. to happen.
0: Good luck. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He he, – one of the things that struck me as a reader of the book um, that I didn't know this, but he kind of designed the template. Like you said, he had a lot of training in other parts of his his other life that helped build that capacity for him. Um, uh, But he built a template um, of how to get these things done. He didn't – he wasn't always successful in every intuition uh, um, he had, but he – ultimately was i mean he ultimately made things possible that were not possible before he came along um, and, and that's why I think this book is so important to um, the whole, and not just the LGBTQ community, but the rest of the community out there too, reading. Um, there's so much in your book that I, I found really powerful that I thought, oh, wow, this needs, this would be not only commercially, this would be a fun movie to watch, <laughs> our t- television series, because there's so much going on here, but that it is a part of all all of our histories, not just the LGBTQ movement. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to, I'm trying to keep an eye on our time. I wanted before we signed off today to see if, I, I know all, all people who write are uh, always working on m- more than one thing at a time. And, 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 and I get this question myself when people talk to me about my writing, what's next, what are you doing next? As if you have uh, a lot to talk about. We don't always do, but tell us where you are, um, not necessarily um, divulging things, but tell us how about, wh- what's happening with you and your work right now.
1: Well, the first exciting thing that I want to tell you is um, the One Archives, going back there, they are going to accept all my uh, research on Morris Kite, and they will have a Marianne Cherry collection, uh, which will be mostly about everything that I gathered on Morris Kite. There's a lot more than what's in the book, Um, and it will also include a few other projects um, that I've worked on over the years, just so that it's preserved and, and made available for future generations. So I'm very excited about that. Of course, the the boxes sit here in my corner as we quarantine, because <laughs> we can't. No, no, nothing is open, and there'll be no exchange of anything until we're we're out of quarantine, which hopefully I'm looking forward to in the next few weeks. So there there is that. I'm I'm happy to say. And other than that, I'm in between two projects. I I haven't signed on fully to either, so I don't really want to say too much. But um, you could trust that you will be hearing from me again in some way or another.
0: You are such a good uh, resource for all of us. I appreciate that I got to know you through your work in this book. There's uh, to, the, to the listeners out there, there's so much in this book. Again, we do not have enough time in an hour to talk about a book as comprehensive as Marianne's book is. Um, and, and, and again, a lot of moments when you're reading this, you just want to hit yourself in the head, go, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea. This is so cool. <laughs> you know. Um, so there's a lot in here that um, is going to make for um, a, a good read for anybody. I, I, um, I, I have to uh, uh, tell you, first of all, congratulations on the fact that you're, you're now earning your own piece of the history, um, but um, also that you've written a really compelling story. Um, Thank that storytelling is a big piece of successful book writing and you had so much to work with. Sometimes that makes it overwhelming. Uh, we have a couple more minutes. If you want to talk about, um, the fact that, um, getting something out in the media, your book is now in paperback, just released in 2020. Um, but getting it out, there is not, uh, just having it published is not the end that once you do all this work, there's a lot more that comes with that kind of job that you obviously have to have done. So if you want to talk about that process a little bit, we just have a few more minutes. I'd be happy to hear. You know
1: um, what I have? It's unfortunate. I mean, there's always someone being marginalized in the world, or you know, in in our society. And because Morris, you know, wasn't famous or he wasn't a household name in in most households, um, you know, that that's sort of a mark against him. But what I have found, and this is what he was he was experiencing at the end of his life, is this a terrible ageism in our society, specifically within the gay community. There's a lot of ageism. Now Morris, as a young man, he was very handsome. He he attracted men and women. Now he did not take good care of himself. He didn't age well. He wasn't a handsome older man, but he still carried himself as if he as as if he was still drop-dead gorgeous. You can imagine somebody, you know, still sauntering around. They got, they, they got the swagger. Um, and I think that because he, he, he's not handsome or, you know, they see the picture on the cover of the book and they go, oh, my God, you know, we can't, you know, who's going to want to know this person? Well, I look at his eyes and I think I want to know what's in there. Um, there's still a lot of um, surface value put on the gay movement and gay history. Gay history has got, you know, some dirt under its fingernails. And I think if people are afraid of that, they're not going to be telling the whole story. There's, um, the marginalization within the gay community, um, is, it frightens me a little bit. Uh, there's still, you know, it's not as bad as it was in the nineties when it was all about looks and who's hot and sexy. There's, cause there's real people behind these stories and that's, what I always search for is that you know where's the human element in this, and Morris was very human in his imperfections. And I, I don't. Well, think you definitely,
0: really that. definitely capture yeah. that in the book, especially when we talked in the beginning of this conversation about his 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 uh, the early part of his life um, was total surprise to me, even though it wasn't. Um, when I read about it, it's like, oh well, that does make sense. Um, but you go into a lot of good. Juicy detail, <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, to entice the readers out there about um, what he was like as a person who, as a young person who had to leave lead a double life, and had a mother again. Um, Bessie was her name, I think, who had, who was like straight out of a Tennessee Williams uh, play. Um, so he has a colorful life. You could have ended it there. That as far as the yeah. storytelling, he was fascinating. He is fascinating. You are fascinating to talk to, Marianne. <laughs> um, Likewise, I'm, uh, thank you. We're going to have to uh, sign off now. But so we're at the end of our uh, recording today. But um, it's been a really, really great uh, discussion. I, I appreciate you giving us the time for this. Um, the thank book, you, uh, everyone. You're welcome. Uh, the book is called Morris Kite. Um, humanist, liberationist, fantabulous, a story of gay rights and gay wrongs. And it's now out, um, available um, everywhere from uh, Process Media. Um, Join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South. Goodbye, everybody.